Good morning. Let's find our seats. Good to see everyone this morning. Chance to worship together, study God's words together, and um, dive into a fun story that if you were um, in Sunday school in a church as a child, you had to have heard this story. Guarantee it. It's one of those ones that just tells really well in Sunday school, and so it's always included in the curriculum. But today, we're going to hopefully explore it and find some of the, um, how it fits into Acts, some of the deeper lessons out of this story of, of how to praise God in the dark and at midnight and God's work in really difficult situations. I have a test here that's going to maybe test and divide us by age a little bit. Not, not that I'm all about that, but um, what do you think of when I say Whittier Narrows? Earthquake. How many people thought earthquake? Okay. That earthquake happened in 1987. Thus the divide, because I would assume that some may not remember 1987 that are here. I do remember it because it was a, um, I was in college at the time. As a very young man. Five. Oh, no. And, and I remember because it was close enough where we felt it really strongly here. I don't know if you remember that. And there was some damage in Whittier Narrows. It's not that far away. I was going to college at the time of Biola. And Biola is much closer to Whittier than we are. Just knocking on the door, right? And I can remember, I wasn't there for the actual earthquake, but I remember one of the aftershocks, I was sitting in an upstairs building, um, Sutherland, for those of you that know um, Biola, in one of the classrooms there, taking a test. Um, and if I remember right, usually my English classes were there and English was a subject I did not appreciate as much as I should probably. And, um, we're taking a test and this after it's, and the first thing we all think of, we're free. (laughs) No test. This is awesome. Freedom. (laughs) And, And we all start to get up and to leave. And the teacher's like, oh no. Sit back down, you have a test. We're like, we could die! Especially Sutherland's brick, you know, and, and there was a lot of issues with brick buildings and Whittier Narrows. And, and um, the teacher's like, nope. Um, which is, I guess, you know, what you have to be to be an English teacher. Sorry for those of you that are English teachers. Um, and we sat there and we took the test through the shaking and, and it, was, it was this surreal moment. And, and there were other aftershocks that I have surreal stories from on that particular earthquake. But it was interesting because we could not get out of that. We couldn't get out of the test. The teacher was very firm on that. But today we want to talk about earthquakes a little bit. And, and in that case, we did not gain freedom from an earthquake. But in today's story, we'll see that Paul and Silas do gain freedom from an earthquake. Earthquakes may seem random, but even earthquakes God can control and God can direct. And so if he can direct earthquakes to do his bidding, how much more can he direct anything to do his bidding? Turn with me to Acts chapter 16, and we'll be looking at verses 16 to 40 today. Acts 16, 16 to 40 today. And I know in Southern California we're used to earthquakes, but there's a lot of fear of earthquakes. But again, one of the things of this story should be to see God's sovereignty over all things and how God uses all things, even the difficult things that we go through. Because we go through a lot more difficult things than earthquakes. We have earthquakes in our lives. We have earthquakes in our work. We have earthquakes all around us. But God is going to be with us and use each of those things. So Acts chapter 16, 16 through 40. And just to remind us where we went, we're on Paul and Silas's second missionary journey. If, if you missed a couple of weeks and you're wondering where'd Barnabas go, that was a couple of weeks ago and there was some, some disagreement some, that got, got um, a little more heated, a little stronger. And so they ended up going their separate ways. And Paul grabbed Silas and he went um, in the overland route and we saw him pick up Timothy. And now they are on this second missionary journey. And just to, to put up a map, I, don't, I didn't bring a pointer up. Um, if you look on the right, the arrows are going up. Antioch is where they started. They do the overland route to Tarsus. And then when Pastor AJ spoke, we saw him go through Derby and Lystra, Iconium and all the way over to the top left, to Philippi. So they crossed the water there into Macedonia because God shut all the other doors, right? We talked about the will of God a little bit last week. God shut all the other doors and said, this is where I want you to go. 
And so they go to Philippi, and we learned that they, they started meeting by the river there. That's where some of the believers met to pray. And Lydia, one of the, the leading ladies there, came to know the Lord. And it looks like the gospel is thriving. It looks like things are flourishing. And it's a, it's a, wonderful, a wonderful thing. And so then we get to our text today, and we see what, what continues to happen, or the ongoing story of Philippi. And so point number one, and, and really I've just broken up our points today into the, the paragraphs of the text. Paul acts to help a slave girl and preserve the integrity of the gospel. Paul acts to help a slave girl and preserve the integrity of the gospel. Starting in verse 16. As we are going to the place of prayer, and again, they're going down by the, the river to where they pray, and it's a sign that the church practiced consistent prayer. And we see this throughout Acts. Prayer is just part of the rhythm. Prayer, praying together was part of the rhythm of the early church and, and should be part of our rhythm. So as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. And so Luke here is setting up the story, and, and, and Luke here is with them. You know that by the words we and stuff. So he's, he's eyewitness to this. And this slave girl had a spirit of divination or an ability to tell the future. Somehow, it looks as if it's a demonic ability. The wording that Luke uses here is literally python spirit. And it has to do with some of the local customs. Um, a python was a dragon or a serpent, interestingly enough, um, a dragon or a serpent. And it was associated with the oracle at Delphi, which was just about 80 miles northwest of here. Delphi was a city. And an oracle is something that you could go and you could have the future revealed to you. And so this, um, this serpent, the python, was known for being able to tell the future which is why this spirit was called that. The story goes on, and it's really fascinating that the god Apollo apparently went and killed the serpent and then became the guardian of the oracle, and, and he could dis- distribute truth and all kinds of really interesting things that are not what we're teaching as truth today, but part of the lore of the time. But the slave girl had this spirit, but it, it's key to understand she brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. And so she was not only enslaved, but she was being used for someone else's gain, which I guess is what enslavery would be. And so here we see, we see a number of problems, and, and all the way from how we use people for our own purposes and, and all kinds of different things. And this, this, in verse 17, it goes on to say what she's doing. She followed Paul and us, so she qu- followed them on their missionary journey in Philippi, and she kept crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Now, you might look at this at first glance and say, wasn't that a good thing? This is free publicity. And it's accurate. Right? They're they're servants of the Most High God. Um, they, They can proclaim to you the way of salvation. And she's known for being able to tell the truth and being able to tell the future. She, uh, The spirit she had was considered more of a benevolent demon. (laughs) It was. Something that would be for good rather than for evil. And so what's the problem here? We go on to, to read in verse 18, And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour. I, lo- I love that. I just come out, Jesus Christ, gone. And so just to, I think to, it helps us to understand what's going on here a little bit and ask the question, why was Paul upset? Why was he annoyed that this was happening? And there's a number of things. Um, one of them is this, this girl was known to have a spirit or a demon, good or bad, in her. And there is an issue of association, right? If... If I am, am preaching the good news or something, and there is someone that is evil that is saying, listen to Ron, is that a problem? Yeah. I, so let's just get bizarre and extreme here, okay? What if you are going out witnessing, you're preaching the gospel, and Hitler, let's just stay with me, Hitler's going in front of you saying, you know what? Pastor Andrew is right. He's telling the truth. Listen to him. Is that problematic? A little bit? Now, does that help us understand the story a little bit? 
when, when an evil person or an evil entity is, is starting to associate themselves with the gospel, that now degrades the gospel. And actually, I think this was Satan's intentional ploy to water down the gospel and to hinder the gospel by associating himself with it. As weird and bizarre as that sounds, he now can, can convince people it's not true eventually because he's now controlling it in some sort of a way. And in fact, the fact that um, she's saying these men are servants of the Most High God, this should remind us of a story in Luke, a story we studied there of Legion. Remember Legion, the, the guy that had the thousands of demons in him? When he came to Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High? Demons often recognized Jesus or God or His message as the Most High. Why? Because they knew the truth. Because He is the Most High. And, and so they are, they are telling the truth, but the source is tainted. There's also part of the tradition there is as demons would speak the name of something, they were trying to control it in a way. As anyone spoke the name of something, they were trying to control it. One other idea of, of why this was problematic, and, and I think both are probably true in this case, um, one of the other gods they worshipped was Zeus. They, they worshipped a lot of gods. Cover your bases, make sure you're covered and, and all that. But Zeus was one of the gods they, they worshipped, and he was considered the most high god of all the other gods. And so it is quite possible, and we don't know this for sure, but a number of scholars think that Paul also might have been concerned that people would get confused. And really, if Satan was doing this, tell the truth, but do it in a way that obscures the truth, that leads people a different direction. And so if he could tell the truth, but point people to Zeus, that's a win for Satan. And so Paul sees this, and he doesn't immediately react. He he lets this play out a little bit, sees what's going on here, and then he addresses it by healing the young girl. He helps her. And, and we see the power of the name or the, the, the reputation of Jesus Christ. I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her, and it came out that very hour. No question. There is absolute authority there. And so we see here Paul protecting the integrity of the gospel. Because to allow this to continue, to allow a tainted source to be affirming the gospel. And I'm not talking just someone that is, we all, we all sin, but someone that is living in sin, that is tainted, that is tainted, that is a way that is going to, to attach their reputation to the reputation of the gospel. We cannot allow that. We cannot allow that. This is one of the reasons why we are very careful about what worship songs we sing. And I know this is a, a sensitive subject, but there are a number of groups that do worship songs where that money and that, that source goes to a false teaching and goes to a teaching that is leading people astray from the gospel. And so even though some of those songs are very, pos- um, uh, very popular, we've chosen not to do some of those songs because we don't want to contribute to an organization that is clearly tainting the gospel. And so that's why you may, you may hear some say, oh, we, I love this song. And you know, why, why doesn't Village do it? There might be a reason behind it. And the song itself might be just fine. The message here was fine. But we want to be careful of the source and careful that we don't taint that. It's a much longer discussion. I I wrote on that on one of the the sites I'm on this week. And um, we can talk about that later if that interests you. Because it's a hard discussion. it's, It's hard to know where those boundaries go. But we want to protect the integrity of the gospel and protect the integrity of the church. As I was thinking through application of this point, and personally as I was thinking, I think the question I would ask myself is, how does my lifestyle reflect on the gospel? If, if I'm preaching the gospel, if I'm witness and I want to be a witness for Christ, does my lifestyle support that or does my lifestyle taint that? And, and that's, that's a, a, hopefully a wake-up call for all of us to evaluate where we're at in life and to make sure our life represents our faith that our life is consistent with our faith because we want to have that kind of consistency. 
And so Paul here, Paul and Silas, they're preaching the gospel, they're praying with the church, and they help this girl and they free her from a demonic influence. They free her from being used in slavery, by the way, because now she's worthless to to them because you can't tell the future anymore. They did a good thing. They did the right thing. But we're going to find out in the next section, instead of being praised for that, instead of being thanked for that, they are assaulted for that. So we get to point number two. Paul and Silas are beaten and imprisoned for doing the right thing. Paul and Silas are beaten and imprisoned for doing the right thing. The question I put there, because I was trying to tie in the earthquake theme, will their faith be shaken? Because they already shook up the whole vendor. and the, Yeah, okay. Um, just go with me on the earthquake thing. Verse 19. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And so right there, right away, the owners are like, that's our source of income. What is going on? What have you done? We are using her for our gain, and now we can't. And so they're upset. They seize Paul and Silas. We're not quite sure why Timothy and Luke aren't, aren't taken. Could be a couple things. They might not be, have been with them. They might have been in another part of town. Or Paul and Silas seem to be the more vocal because Luke and Timothy were more behind the scenes. Timothy was learning and, and um, Luke was just visiting along with them. But for whatever reason, Paul and Silas get the brunt of this. And, and so we see another interesting thing is when the owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, that Luke uses the same word he used for the demon was gone in the prior verse in 18. So he's tying them together that now that the demon is gone, their hope of gain is gone. And so they seize Paul and Silas. And the issue here is personal gain. It's not anything else. He messed with our personal gain. He messed with me doing what I want to do, so I am going to attack. There's no concern for the girl. There's no concern for whether this was a right thing. There's no concern about whether this was a demon. And it's interesting because the gospel message often messes with sin in our world. It disrupts sin in the world. It stands against sin in our world. And this world doesn't like it when you stand against sin. And so we see this... We see the result of their good deed. No good deed goes unpunished, I guess. Verse 20, And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They abdicate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. And so they brought them before the local officials. Keep in mind, Philippi is a Roman town. It is not a Jewish town. Small Jewish population. But it is known as a Roman town. You saw on the map that it was was much closer to Rome. And so the magistrates here are Roman magistrates exercising Roman rule. What do you notice that is missing in the um, accusations? What's missing is he took away our income. What's missing is the real accusation, right? The real problem. But they have to come up with these other things because the Roman magistrates would be so you lost some money. That's not a, a, that's, they didn't do anything wrong. So that wasn't something that they could, they, they could hang on them. They had to come up with something else. And so they came up with three accusations. The first was these men are Jews. These men are Jews. And we could look at that right from the start and say, oh man, that's a racist accusation. Maybe, maybe not. You have to keep in mind at the time, the Jews... Um, there had been all kinds of issues with Jews and insurrection in the Roman Empire. And so the issue here was probably more insurrection. And by saying they're Jews, they're trying to tie them with someone trying to overthrow the Roman government. They're Jews, and and that goes more with the, the next phrase. They are disturbing our city. A public disturbance. Okay, so, so they're, they're going to try to overthrow the government. They're, they're a, a public nuisance. They're disturbing our city. They advocate customs, and this is the third one, they advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans. They are advocating non-Roman practices. And, and we might, well, that's not a big deal. This probably was trying to tie to the exorcism, and they were probably trying to tie that to an exercise of their faith. And you could be Christians in a Roman town, you just couldn't proselyte or, or actively try to get other people to become Christians. But these are false 
these are false premises. These are false charges. This isn't why they were upset. And so Paul and Silas now, for trying to do the right thing, have been brought to the magistrates by mob, basically, have been charged of false things and made false accusations about. And then 22, the crowd joined in attacking them. And the magistrates tore their garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And so now the mob joins in and and the magistrates don't know what to do because ultimately they just want peace in the town. And so to appease, we think, they, they tore the garments off Paul and Silas, they humiliated them, and then they beat them with rods. Multiple sticks tied together. Very painful. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, just in case we think it was one just little light blow, when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. And and having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. So a lot going on here. And and I wrote, this was a bad day for doing the right thing. Because it just goes, it gets worse and worse and worse. Now in the background, what we're going to see later in the text, both Paul and Silas are Roman citizens. And it was against Roman law to beat a Roman citizen without a trial. Okay, so, so this is in the background. Paul has that card to play. It's like having a trump card in, in a game and you're waiting until the right time to play it. He has that. He doesn't play it yet because he has a longer view of what he wants for the church and, and to support the church at Philippi. So they, they beat him. They put him in maximum con- security. When it says they put him in inner prison, it's because the order was, to the jailer was they better not get out. Keep them safely. And there probably was rumors of what had already happened a couple other times to some apostles that were jailed. Didn't turn out so, so good for the jailer. And so he puts them in maximum security, which is what the inner prison means. And, and it's the worst place in the prison, the, the dankest, darkest place. And then he puts their feet in wooden stocks. And uh, lots of descriptions of what those were. And, and we think of maybe pilgrim days and the woodstocks. And that, that probably has some accuracy. But this was pressed down much tighter to where you couldn't even move your feet. You couldn't shift positions. It was very painful. One author, Brian Rapsky, wrote about it this way. The prisoners would be crammed together in the dark. Their wounds from any flogging would be untended. We know that from the text. With no circulation, a stench would fill the air. Their necks would be in colors and their feet and arms manacled. The length of chain running through their fetters prevented any hope of escape and probably any hope of restful sleep. And that's how this paragraph ends. Sort of leaves it dark. This is, this is not a good situation for Paul and Silas. They are now thrown into prison for nothing they did. And, and they have to, what are they going to do? You know, what would we do? That, so, sometimes I'm like, well, I know what they did. Yeah, I would do that. I don't think I would do that. I'd probably get angry. I'd probably fume a little bit. I'd probably sulk. I'd probably shut down. I'd probably wonder where God was. God, you led us to Macedonia. We tried to go somewhere else. See, God, we were right. They, they didn't do any of that. I'm saying what, what I might think. Maybe what you would think, if we're honest. This is a dark situation. They do the right thing and they suffer for it. And by application, and just as a, I don't have much on this point, other than remember that we too may suffer for doing the right thing. Do it anyway. We too might suffer for doing the right thing. Do it anyway. Because we're doing it for God. In this world, more and more, we are going to suffer for doing the right thing. And I don't want to beat that drum. I know that there's all kinds of frustration there. But we're going to do that. As a church, we may suffer for doing the right thing. With people we know, do it anyway. And so we come to the, the third section, the third movement of the story. And my, my, my wording there, they praise in the storm. God works and shakes things up, and people are saved. They praise in the storm. God works and shakes things up, to get the earthquake metaphor in there, and people are saved. Let me read this section, or let's, let's go through this section. We're going to see it, this, this section really has two halves. The first is the deliverance of Paul and Silas. 
And the second is the deliverance of the jailer and his household. So verse 25, right from the start, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them. So right there is this, I know I call it the record scratch moment. And now that vinyl's back, I think more people understand what that is. But um, it, it, you know, that, that moment, I can remember where all of a sudden something would hit the needle and this beautiful song would go, and everything would stop. And that's sort of what this is for me because everything's going bad. And then we get to about midnight, the darkest part of the night, the part where it's just the worst and I, th- I think both this is a, a, a timing thing, but also I think probably a little bit about where they were at. Th- this should have been the darkest time. About midnight, Paul and Silas were griping and grumbling. And c- no. Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. How on earth could they do that? They've been beaten. Their wounds are untended. They are in pain. They can't move. And they pray and sing. This is amazing. And we might say, oh, they're just really, really strong people. I'm not sure any human being has enough strength to do that. I think the only way this happens is if we put our trust in God. If we put our trust in someone else. The right source. And so this shows that they, they trusted God. They were praying to God. Could have been, We don't know what about I would imagine the circumstances. I would imagine the church. But, but they were singing as well. And they chose the darkest hour to choose to worship and to choose to sing and to choose to praise. Amazing. Amazing. When I think of, of some of the, the dark situations you all have gone through, it amazes me when we can trust God and still sing and still worship, and still be joyful. Really, this is about having joy in God. A peace that knows God is working, that knows our situation, and knows that He will use it for His purposes in the end, and for His glory. James 1-2 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. And he goes on to talk about that, but the instruction is, choose joy, choose to worship, even in the darkest time, even at midnight. Because it directs our mind to God. It directs our mind to the source of comfort, to the source of power, to the source of sovereignty that He is doing something that we can't understand. One of the early church fathers, Tertullian, wrote, the leg does not feel the chain when the mind is in heaven. The leg does not feel the chain when the mind is in heaven. Psalm 42.8 from your worship thought today talks about God's song being with us at night. It says, By day the Lord commands His steadfast love, and at night His song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. Paul and Silas are living that song. They're singing in the night, praying to God. Songs in the night come from God, and they make a difference. Did you catch the difference that they made even in this verse? The very last phrase is not just a a little narrative thing. And the prisoners were listening to them. This is such a powerful verse because their choosing joy in the midst of difficulty helped people notice and helped people see God. The prisoners are listening to them. Now, this is a little bit of me and my imagination, stepping away from the Bible a little bit. If I know Paul, they're praying and singing and he's preaching the gospel. Just my hunch, but you, you never could stop Paul from preaching the gospel, so I don't know why this would as well. So, so they are hearing about God. They are hearing the gospel. And people are noticing the choice that they made to worship. 26. And we see the answer to that prayer come at midnight in the darkest time. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. You can sort of understand the doors being opened, but all of a sudden the shackles popping off their wrists, that's a really directed earthquake. That's really cool. Um, The stocks opening up, it's just, it's God worked, right? Amen? It's okay to say it. We, we We can praise God. Amen? 
Thank you. Because this is an amazing miracle. This is more than just a kid's story. God answered prayer to his servants in a very dark time. And so the earthquake happens on God's command, shakes the prison, and people are released. But that's not where the story ends. That's where, again, Luke is such a great story, story writer. Because the next thing I would expect to see is, and all the prisoners ran free and got away. Right? And in fact, that's sort of where it leads. And he shifts a little bit here and doesn't even deal with the prisoners yet, but deals with the jailer. And so just the Holy Spirit through Luke is drawing us into the story because he wants us to see the power of the gospel and what it's about to do. And it's better than the earthquake. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. The logical conclusions, right? Now, keep in mind, we've talked about this before. Roman law was, if you were a jailer or if you were a guard and someone escaped, you were then assigned their penalty. And so if you were guarding someone that was responsible for murder and they escaped and it was, it was headed for the death penalty, then you were executed as the, as the one that let them leave. That was, that was Roman law. This is why the soldiers at the tomb of Christ, that was so scandalous that they would pay them money and let them off. It's one of the proofs of the resurrection because Romans never did that. Something else had happened. And so here the jailer sees it, and if all the prisoners are gone, he now has to pay the cumulative sentences for all of them. And that's probably death because there's probably some in there that are under the, the death. But we don't know that for sure. What we do know is the jailer couldn't handle that, so he pulls out his sword because it would be more honorable to fall on his own sword than to be, be executed. So he, he looks around, prisoners surely have escaped. Logical conclusion. January 12th, 2010, a devastating 7.0 earthquake hit Haiti. The main prison in Port-au-Prince was destroyed. Almost all of the 4,000 inmates escaped. One of the reporters said, we heard the prison was destroyed. We didn't realize we'd find the door wide open. UN officials believe the prisoners rioted after the quake, overwhelmed the guards, and escaped. That's real life. That happened just 10 years ago. So the, 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 the jailer here has good cause for being concerned for his life. And then 28, but Paul. And sometimes we, we read verses and whatever it says, but God. This is but Paul, but God is working through Paul. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Don't harm yourself, we're all here! couple things to notice. Paul takes an initiative here to save the jailer's life physically, and he's about to save his life spiritually. But what's interesting to me is he doesn't say, Silas and I are still here. Who's there? All of them. All of them. Now, there's a lot of theories, and we, Luke doesn't get into it, but, but think about why are they all still there? And, and I think it's tied to they were all listening to the gospel. They were all listening to the singing. They were all listening to the prayers. And Paul somehow convinced them to stay. But for whatever reason, they are all still there because of the influence of Paul and Silas, I think we could argue. And he says, don't kill yourself. We're here. And Paul and Silas stayed because they had a better purpose than escape. They had a more important reason for being there than getting out of jail. Verse 29. And the jailer called for the lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And so God used the earthquake. He used the opening of the doors. He used the prisoner still being there, all to confirm to the jailer his need for the gospel. This is all setting up a spiritual victory, a spiritual freedom, not a physical freedom. And certainly the jailer had had to have heard some of the message to to have his first statement be, what must I do to be saved? And maybe he was hearing it in the prison because he sort of has to be there. Maybe he had heard it in town as Paul and Silas are preaching. We don't know. But his first comment is, what must I do to be saved? Which is just an amazing first thing. I mean, imagine if your neighbor just came to you out of the blue one day and knocked on your door and said, you know, I was wondering how to become a Christian. 
Can you tell me? Wouldn't that be cool? I'd be like, yeah, let's talk. It would be weird if I hadn't been talking to him already. But that was the, the, the situation that was set up here. Paul Hill, one of the commentators I really like for Acts, said the miracle served not to deliver them, but rather to deliver the jailer. The miracle served not to deliver them, but to deliver the jailer. And so this gets us into the second half, the deliverance of the jailer and his household. It says, what must I do to be saved? In 31, and they said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. They don't list a, a set of rules. They don't list a set of things that they has to, he has to be better at for the next year before he can be saved. <clears throat> he needs to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and he will be saved. And that belief there, the word pastuo, means more than just an intellectual belief. It's not just, oh, I assert that's true. Oh, look, the carpet's blue. We all agree, the carpet's blue. It's, it's not just a belief like that. It is a belief that goes to the heart, a belief that changes lives. In fact, one of the definitions of that word is to trust in, to rely on. And so the word for believe here is to know that Jesus is God, to know what he's done, but to put your trust in him and to rely on him for your life. Isn't that a beautiful way of describing salvation? That's what we've done when we come to Christ. We put our trust in him. We rely on him. We say that he is Lord of our life. Which is why I think Paul said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Make him master of your life. Allow him full control even when it's hard. There's lots of questions here about, okay, what does it mean about his household, right? So does this mean that dad gets saved, everyone in the household's automatically saved? No, it doesn't. Okay, we'll move on. No, just kidding. <laughs> couple of things. The, 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 the nature of the text here is more an offer for all. You believe and you will be saved, and this offer is available for your household as well. And the Greek text makes that a little clearer, but you can even see that in the English text. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. You and your household have this offer that you can be saved. And it's confirmed in the next verse. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And what this means is they sat and they further talked about what salvation was. They further explained what Christ had done and made sure they understood it. And it was more than just the dad, that they, the, the jailer that they talked to. They brought in everyone that was of understandable age. And so everyone needed to understand and everyone needed to believe. And it's a reminder to us that there are no spiritual grandchildren. I know that's a familiar phrase, but it's a, it's a really true phrase. You are not saved because of your parents' faith. You will never be saved because of your parents' faith. I know our junior high and high schoolers are in, in here. You need to know the truth. You need to know who Jesus is. You need to choose to follow him to be saved. Mom and dad doesn't do it. Sitting in the pew doesn't do it. But understanding and knowing what Jesus has done, but then more importantly that, saying, I put my trust in Jesus. I am a sinner. He has offered me redemption. I trust him. You know, one, one of the, the questions I have out of this one is, if someone does come to us and, and asks, what do I have to do to be saved? Do we know how to answer that? Are, are we ready with an answer to that? And, and we should be ready with, with that answer. And, and because Paul even explained it more and he took the time to explain it. He gave the summary, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And then he dives into it in that next verse. And, and just sort of for fun and give you a, a way to remember this and how to share the gospel and our youth have heard this. You guys have heard this in Lifeline. You've heard it two different ways. Same four steps. I'll give you both ways. Think God, man, Christ, response. God, man, Christ, response. How many of our youth have heard that? Okay, a bunch of you. Um, or you may have heard creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Depending on who you heard teaching, you probably heard different ways. Um, but what that basically means, it starts with God or creation and in, in a nutshell, this is the, as one of our elders says, your elevator talk, if you had 30 seconds, um, what, how would you say it? In a nutshell, it starts with God and creation. God created everything. He created mankind to be in relationship with him, and he loves us. And then we get to man or the fall, but man 
being given the, 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 the choice to eat of the fruit or not, man chose to sin. And as man chose to sin, that disrupted that relationship. It put a gap between God and man because that is an act of rebellion against God. The God that created all things, the God of the universe. And then we get to Christ or redemption, depending on which of the four words you're doing with. That's where we have this gap that we can't bridge on our own, but God. But God sent His Son. Because the penalty for that sin is death. But Christ died on the cross for us and took that penalty for us. And so now, because that penalty has been paid, we can be restored to relationship with God through the blood of Christ, through the work of, through nothing we've done, but through the work of Christ, God sees us as righteous. And that's redemption. And then we have response or restoration that then as we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, as we give our heart to Him, He now restores us into relationship with Him. That's the gospel. What must I do to be saved? Make sure they understand those things. God, man, Christ response. Or creation, fall, redemption, restoration. So 32, they spoke the the words of the Lord to all that were in the house. Verse 33, And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. And so we see an incredible response to the gospel. The first part is just an evidence that he responded to the gospel. The first thing he does is takes them, probably they were near the the town water supply for both the the washing of the wounds and for the baptism. And he takes them at night, we're, we're just past midnight, and he washes their wounds and he takes care of them. Now this isn't necessary for salvation, but it's an evidence of salvation that these are now brothers. And he's like, what, what are we doing? And so he cleans them up. And at the same time, he's like, you know what? We got water here. And he's baptized and all of his family because they believed as well. And now this jailer who was once a stranger to them and to God is now a brother to them and a child of God. That's what this story is about. God using a dark circumstance to miraculously bring someone to him. And it's a beautiful thing. And it's an amazing thing. Verse 34, Then he brought them up into his house and set food before him. We've talked about um, Eastern culture and that to eat together is a sign of fellowship. It's a sign of community. And so they eat together. Prisoner with jailer. This is unheard of. This could get him fired. But they eat together because they probably hadn't eaten. And And he, the jailer, rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. That's the crux of the story. Everything went from midnight to rejoicing by the the act of God, by the work of God. You know, some applications here. There's lots that we can can pull out here out out of this whole section. The first is to choose to worship. Choose to worship in every difficulty, even when we don't feel like it. Choose joy. There are some things that will hit us that are so difficult that we don't even know how to go on. Choose to worship. Choose to seek God. Choose joy. You know, part of this, then, how do we do that? Part of being able to do that is focus on what God can do through the trial rather than on ending the trial. Focus on what God can do through a trial rather than ending the trial. Sometimes, and and I'm not saying we shouldn't pray that the trial's ended, But is part of our prayer, God, use this for your glory? That's the difference here. It's not just, God, get me out of this. It's really tough. But God, what are you trying to do through this? Use this for your glory and see what God will do. You know, I think this focus of what God can do through the trial rather than ending the trial, that's why they didn't leave, even when they could have. God, they knew God would end the trial when it was his time. And that's the next paragraph but they were focused on how can this be used by God. Remember, people are watching. People are watching how we deal with everything as believers. If, you, if someone knows you're a believer, someone knows you're a Christian in this day and age, I guarantee they're watching your life, picking it apart, wondering what's different. Show them what's different. 
through joy, through worship, even in the hard times. Last application I would say is be ready to share the gospel. Know the gospel. Be ready to share it. It's, it can be shared quickly. It's simple and profound at the same time. It's easy, but it's costly. Know how to share that. Last paragraph, 35 through 40. Paul skillfully protects the reputation of the church and the scared officials apologize. I just had to get that in there. Paul skillfully protects the reputation of the church and the scared officials apologize. Let's step through this, 35. But when it was day, okay, so this all happened midnight, just after midnight. Now it's daytime. Now probably, and we can get this by inference, probably all of the prisoners went back to their cells. Okay, so because the jailer isn't killed, he's not fired, but there's a new spirit and and there's a a new um, approach here. Um, But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, let those men go. Paul and Silas, why don't you let them go? Now, we're not sure why. I think the most probable is they were just keeping the peace and they figured a good beating and night in jail was enough because the charges weren't enough to send up to a higher court without being laughed at. And, and so probably this was enough. Um, others say maybe they regretted their decision. I don't see regret here. I see a lot of just personal protecting themselves. Um, and the jailer reported these words to Paul because they're brothers now saying, hey, the magistrates, uh, okay, hey is me. The magistrates have sent, <laughs> sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. Paul, God got you out. You didn't have to leave. Thank you, by the way, for that. You're free to go. And so again, you have the next word is but, because most of us would be like, thank you, Jesus. We're going, right? But Paul said to them, this is where he plays his trump card. They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens, record scratch again, and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. (laughs) Isn't this beautiful? (laughs) This isn't revenge, okay? I, I don't think it's revenge. I don't think from Scripture we see this as revenge. I think we see this as wisdom. And, and Paul is saying, no, no, they, they arrested us. They accused us as part of the church. The reputation of the ongoing church at Philippi is at stake here. If they leave secretly, what do people think? Oh, those charges must have been true. What happened to Paul and Silas, those jerks who were in the town that were accused of insurrection and all this other stuff? No, they, the, the church was publicly disgraced. And so Paul is asking for a public acquittal. That's what he's doing. There's a lot of wisdom in that. Paul is using the the legal system. He's using the means he has to protect the church. And so he says, no, I'm a Roman citizen. The magistrates, by the way, could could lose their jobs for this. This is enough to be removed from their jobs for beating a Roman citizen without a trial. And so Paul says, I'd like them to come and take us out personally. Now it's a public acquittal publicly saying these guys are okay. These charges were not true. And so we go on in verse 38. The police reported these words to the magistrates. Sorry, it's hard not to say that without laughing. I can just picture the magistrates think they're done, we're good. They report the the words to the magistrates and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. What have we done? We are in trouble. So they came and they apologized to them. And, and, and rather than be defensive, when we know what we've done is wrong, we come and then we apologize and we repent. Now, I, I don't know that this was true of repentance. I think this, again, is pretty self-serving. I could be wrong. That, that's wrong opinion and just from inference. They came and, uh, and apologized to them, and they took them out, and they asked them to leave the city. Like, okay, we're taking you out, but we're embarrassed, we're humiliated. Could you just go? And... Um, now, at this point, it's interesting because Paul and Silas could have made a scene at this point. They had every right to pursue this more. They, they could have said, no, we're not. In fact, we'd like this or we'd like this or we'd like this. But their goal wasn't insurrection. Their goal wasn't to try to make a point of this. Their goal was to protect the church. And so they, 
in verse 40, they went out of the prison and they visited Lydia. So they visited the church, they encouraged them, and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. And so they were vindicated. The church was vindicated, which was vital for the ongoing mission of the church at Philippi. And then they departed. They said, okay, our job here is done. Let's see what city's next. Sort of would be fun to be Paul and Silas and part of their group then. Okay, what's God going to do in the next city? Which you'll get to hear about next week. You get a couple, couple another, two other cities next week. They went out. Probably Luke stays in Philippi, by the way. Again, this is just what we get from inferences in the text because now we, um, we move from um, we language to they did this. And so probably Luke wasn't with them after that. He probably stayed in Philippi to help the church and encourage the church. So how do we apply this? We could say our, our first application is to become Roman citizens. Not where I'm going with it this morning. We need to protect the reputation of God's church. We need to protect the reputation of God's bride. When we disparage God's bride, we are in sin. When we make God's bride look bad, we are in sin. Now, I'm not saying we don't address sin in a biblical way, privately with two or three people, with other elders, but we must know that this is Christ's bride. We are Christ's bride. And so do we protect the reputation of God's church with our actions, with our speech, by knowing the word? You know, I, I think as well there's, there's lessons here for even supporting laws and policies that protect the church and enable the church to thrive. Paul said, I'm a Roman citizen. And he used that to help the church. And so when we vote coming up, we should be voting in ways and thinking in ways of what will help the church, what will help the gospel. Yeah, maybe a secondary issue is is what will help my tax rate. But man, primary issues are things like religious freedom and abortion and those things that are just so clearly laid out in Scripture. Paul accepted the apology and he moved on in peace because it was about the church and it was about the gospel. What a story. Paul and Philippi. And let's pray. Lord God, we praise you. We praise you no matter what our circumstances are right now. We choose to worship because you are great and you are holy and you are sovereign and you are drawing people to yourself. And so Lord, thank you for letting us be part of that. Part of that process of seeing people freed from the captivity of sin seeing people come and become disciples and follow you and worship you, Lord God. I pray that we would be ready. Messengers ready to share the gospel, ready to know the gospel, and that we would reflect well on you and your church, Lord God. Thank you for your works. Thank you for your um, just incredible power. In your precious name, amen.